We humans are wired up to need variety. Psychologists suggest that variety is one of the key determinants of our overall life satisfaction. We like to have novelty and freshness in our lives, and equally are disappointed when life seems boring, stale, and unchanging. Variety stimulates our imagination and fuels our hope. One of the most debilitating symptoms of clinical depression is the false conviction that nothing will ever change. The world is bleak and hopeless, and it always will be. If we're awake to them, even the smallest shifts in our environment, moving from strawberry season to raspberry season, can serve as reminders that things can and do change. When we positively embrace variety, we are prompted to seize the day, make the most of the opportunity, to grab it with gusto and gratitude, because we know it's a time-limited opportunity. But of course, there is such a thing as too much variety. When variety descends into completely unpredictable chaos, then it threatens our sense of control and stability. Apparently, what we actually need is a healthy balance of variety and predictability. The church calendar offers us just that, the predictable rhythms of seasons, but seasons that vary in color from contemplative fasts and solemn remembrance to feasts that are boisterous with their joy. It's a practice that the church borrowed from its Jewish roots, where the history of God's deliverance was told in annual festivals like Passover and Purim, and sins were repented on Yom Kippur. This week, on Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, the church begins the observance of Lent, a 40-day fasting season leading up to Easter. It's intended to prepare Jesus' followers for a proper celebration of Easter. Many traditions and practices are observed across the church, but three components are common. Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, or charity. Prayer, devoting special time or emphasis to prayer and meditation on Scripture. Fasting foregoing something pleasurable in recognition of Jesus' great sacrifice on our behalf, and also acknowledging the importance of spiritual, as opposed to just physical, food. And almsgiving, sharing our abundance with those who have less. Lent is seen as a solemn time, a time for repentance. I hesitate to use that word repentance, because for many of us, it is tainted with very negative baggage. That to repent means to see myself as a horrible sinner, a worthless worm. It doesn't. The Greek word that is translated repent, metanoia, means to rethink, to get a fresh perspective. 
And so Jesus, in his first sermons, told people to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. In effect, he says, you may think you know what God is up to, but I'm bringing a very different kind of kingdom. It's time to rethink everything. We may have unhelpful views of God and of ourselves that we've picked up from past experience, from the prevailing culture, or because we found them comfortable. Lent is a time to do some spring cleaning of those ideas, to rethink them in the light of Jesus. Perhaps I should also comment on what Lent is not. Lent is not a religious activity where we try to impress God with how holy we are. God knows our hearts and always knows them better than we do. Think, for example, of Peter just before the crucifixion. He's boasting to Jesus that he will be the faithful one. But Jesus points out that Peter will deny him three times in the next 12 hours. No, practicing Lent isn't an opportunity to impress God with our spirituality. And equally, Lenten observance is not a show of piety to impress other people with our devotion. Jesus made it clear in his Sermon on the Mount that private spiritual practices like prayer and fasting are to be just that, private. They are to be done in such a way that other people can't even tell, except perhaps by the results of them, by our changed lives. Nor is Lent a season where we commit to costly deprivations in order to punish ourselves or somehow pay for our sins. Nor does it reflect a view that those things that would have, would have given us pleasure are inherently evil and that physical sources of comfort and joy are to be spurned because they are so inferior to spiritual pleasures. We can have lots of misconceptions about the practice of Lent. Let's look at its roots in Scripture to see if we can get a clearer understanding of what it's actually about. A fasting season before Easter that is 40 days long is not actually prescribed in the Bible, but it was chosen by the early church as a way to commemorate Jesus' 40-day fast in the wilderness prior to launching his public ministry. Here's how Mark describes it in his biography of Jesus. All at once, the Spirit pushed Jesus out into the desert. He was in the desert 40 days, and the Satan tested him there. He was with the wild beasts, and angels waited on him. The episode occurs immediately after Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. That sacrament had been a strong affirmation of Jesus, who was then just an unknown young man from Galilee. John tells Jesus, you should be baptizing me. And after the baptism, God the Father and the Spirit add their benediction. The Father announces Jesus as his beloved Son with whom he is well pleased. And the Spirit descends like a dove. A few weeks later, 
Jesus will deliver his first sermons, where he outlines the radically different nature of life in his kingdom. But in between those important events, immediately after the wonderful recognition and affirmation of his baptism, Jesus is led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. Mark records that the Spirit compelled him to go. The word he uses is a forceful one, the same word that is used for casting out demons. The Spirit flung Jesus out into the wilderness. Desert experiences are not ones that our human nature gravitates toward, and sometimes we really only engage with them when circumstances beyond our control fling us into the wilderness. While Jesus is in the desert, he faces three temptations. Both Luke and Matthew give us those details. I think at one level, the temptations are very specific to Jesus and to this time point in his public ministry. But I also think there are some universal truths from this time of testing that may be important for us, especially during Lent. The three temptations are to turn stones into bread to relieve his hunger, to become famous by throwing himself off a high building knowing that angels will rescue him, and to gain possession of everything he can see through a deal with the devil. While those are very specific temptations, they also represent the three types of temptation that we are all prone to. In fact, the same three tests are highlighted at the very beginning of our Bibles and again almost at the very end. In the temptation story in the Garden of Eden, we are told that the apple was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise. It satisfied bodily appetite, the desire to acquire beautiful things, and the desire for unique power. And at the other end of the Bible, in the Apostle John's letter to his church, he warns against the same three dangers. The greedy desire of the flesh, the greedy desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. Apparently, our big three hot buttons are lust, materialism, and ego. Hmm, am I starting to sound like a Victorian moralist? Don't worry, I'm not about to segue into the seven deadly sins. But at the same time, I think we can't be naive about where our vulnerabilities are. Successful advertisers sure know where they are. While I'm not making any claim that they learned about our three basic motivators by reading the Bible, it's nonetheless clear that they all know them. Advertisements, the values we are urged to pursue, the very milieu we swim in every day, are pointed at one of these three fundamental desires. And maybe a really good ad hits all three at once. Henry Nouwen says that the society we live in is not a community radiant with the love of Christ, but rather a network of domination and manipulation. All the messages that the world gives us about our cravings, our greed, and our ego appeal not to our true self, 
the lovely and good self that God made in us, but to our false self. And he says, the false self responds by compulsively looking for affirmation, and it's therefore greedy and angry. And that, I think, is why we need to follow Jesus out into the wilderness to escape the pervasive messaging that tells us happiness is to be found in gratifying our bodies, amassing more stuff, and stroking our egos. Wilderness in the New Testament didn't necessarily mean a remote and desolate place, somewhere out of cell phone range and a hundred kilometers from the nearest road. Wilderness was basically anything outside of the cities, towns and small cultivated areas attached to them. We might think of it as being out in nature. And one of the benefits of being out in nature, at least if we're wise enough to leave our phones behind, is that the unhelpful voices of the world around us are dampened down and our chances of hearing God, the still, small voice of God, are increased. I was recently reading the section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus contrasts the broad, easy path of following the way of the world to the narrow path that leads to life. I've heard it for years, so of course I know what it says. It says that people have a choice between godliness or sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and they choose the latter. But what the verse actually says is that few people find the narrow way. It's not that they deliberately evaluate both options and reject the Jesus way, that rather in the midst of all the noise of our culture, they don't even see that there is another way. And so, when someone strikes me on the right cheek, the only options I see are various paths of retaliation. If there is a narrow little opening to a loving response of turning the other cheek, I am oblivious to it. Being out in the wilderness, away from the urgent voices of contemporary culture, I can rethink things. My eyes can be refocused to see the narrow way, the way of Jesus. But there's another reason we may benefit from time in the wilderness. In the wilderness, out in nature, we see other living things that are flourishing, living exactly the life that God created them for. Mark makes an interesting comment in his version of this story. He says that Jesus was with the wild animals and the angels ministered to him. It doesn't say he was attacked by the animals or needed protection from them but rather that he was with them. I wonder what he learned from them. Now that I'm back to living in the country, I have lots of exposure to the non-human parts of creation. For instance, the ravens. They are magnificent, soaring and hunting, just like they were designed for. I recently saw one floating over the south field and then rising up and perching atop a tree. It was incredible to watch him fold his two-foot-long wing into a neat bundle at his side, just like it was designed to do. 
Squirrels gather nuts, or my tulip bulbs, and squirrel them away. We might think they'd benefit from a bit of project management, but they get the job done. My lovely lilac bushes bloom every spring without me reciting some incantation over them. They do it just like they're supposed to. But when I look at me, it's a different story. I can struggle to even know what I was made for, much less to automatically do it. But as I walk with Jesus, I'm learning more and more clearly that what I was made for is love. That I was designed to be non-judgmental, generous, humble, loving of enemies, and trusting of God. Does any of that come easy to me? Is it as natural as finding and hiding an acorn is for a squirrel? Sadly, no. My reactions, my first instincts, come from my false self, a self self that has been formed by a culture that screams at us to do just the opposite. In the movie Seabiscuit, a horse of impeccable breeding but poor performance has been further harmed by harsh and inconsistent training. When he is first seen by Tom Smith, the man who will eventually train him to be a champion, he seems untrainable and even unrideable. Tom says, I just can't help feeling they got him so messed up, running in circles, that he's forgotten what he was born to do. He just needs to learn to be a horse again. Contemporary society has us frantically running in circles and we may not understand what we were born to do until we get out to the wilderness. In his book, The Day the Revolution Began, N.T. Wright talks about our primary covenant with God not being about works or keeping the law, but about image-bearing. He says our vocation, our calling, is that of being a genuine human being with genuinely human tasks to perform as part of the Creator's purpose for the world. The main task of this vocation is image-bearing, reflecting the Creator's wise stewardship into the world and reflecting the praises of all creation back to its Maker. That's what we were made for. And in Jesus, we see how to do it. Lent is an invitation to journey into the wilderness with Jesus, to escape the strident calls of our secular society, and to rediscover what we were made for. I will add one caution, though, about that kind of retreat. If we are not careful, we can go on retreat and still be self-indulgent. Henry Nouwen warns that we can think of solitude as a place to escape the demands of others, to indulge in our own thoughts, and to express our complaints, or to recharge our batteries and return to the world to do more of what we've always been doing. But the Desert Fathers saw it as more than that. They saw it as a place of conversion, the place where the old self dies and the new self is born. As I think about Lent this year and how I will honor that season, 
I'm struck by how the traditional practices of the season protect us from the three basic temptations. Fasting reminds us that the demands of our physical bodies are not commands and that it's possible to make better choices. Almsgiving reminds us that our goal is not to be the relentless accumulation of more, but to share with those who have less. And prayer? Prayer reminds us that God is God and we are not. Whatever you do, I hope you manage to find some quiet wilderness where you can connect with the God who made you and with the lovely reflection of God's image in you that you were created to bear. 